Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Get Real with Sandra and Friends, a workplace consortium podcast brought to you by Relogix. I'm excited to be sharing conversational musings about current events and how we envision the ever-changing world of work. I'm Sandra Panera, Director of Workplace Insights at Relogix. With 25 years of hands-on experience, I help value engineer global workplace portfolios and employee experiences by aligning workplace analytics with corporate real estate needs. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future podcasts? Please drop me a line at podcast at relogics.com. Today, I'm thrilled to have Kay Sargent, a highly regarded expert on workplace design and strategy issues, as our guest. Kay's impressive credentials include being the global co-director of HOK's workplace team and serving on HOK's board of directors. In 2020, she was recognized as ASID's Designer of Distinction, and currently she is actively serving on several advisory boards. Kay is also an active member of IFMA and the co-founder of the IFMA Workplace Evolutionaries, known to many as the WE Community. In addition to her professional achievements, Kay's impact goes beyond the workplace. In 2021, she was selected to provide congressional subject matter expert testimony to the U.S. House of Representatives on federal real estate post-COVID-19, a view from the private sector. Kay's wealth of experience and knowledge make her an invaluable resource in today's rapidly changing world of work, and I'm excited to dive into the conversation with her. So without further ado, let's get started. Hello, Kay, and welcome. Really glad to have you on as a as a guest today. Happy to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I know you and I go back several years. I mean, we've met, uh, we just met recently in person yeah. at uh, World Workplace in Nashville back in September, but we've been connected on LinkedIn. I know we've exchanged many messages over the years. Tell us a little yeah. bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am a uh, practicing interior design professional. I've been practicing for 38 years before we had the Internet, before we had cell phones, before we even had fax machines, just to put that in context. And I am the director of workplace at HOK, which means that I work with our teams that have uh, and our clients that have multiple projects in multiple locations all over the world. So just to give you a sampling, in 2019, our team delivered 55 million square feet of space in 44 countries all around the world. So that's how I spend my days and usually my nights, too. <laughs> so in 30, you said 38 years, uh, yeah. I'm sure that you've seen a number of changes and kind of like just the emergence or the future of work from 38 years until now. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's some things that are shockingly different and some things that are shockingly the same, right? So again, 38 years ago, no internet, no fax machines. We were drafting, you know, uh, couriers had just kind of started to come into play. People didn't even have beepers yet. I mean, it was a very different time, uh, but we still got a lot of stuff done, but just in a very different way. But if I think about the fundamental setup of a lot of offices, in many cases, they haven't necessarily changed as radically as everything else in our world has. You know, what's interesting about that, I, I've often wondered, because I've worked very closely with the design community over the years, yeah. in the various roles that I've had. And, and I often hear this even just in, you know, social discussions that I'm having with friends and stuff around that point that the offices haven't changed that much. It's always been interesting to me how you have design organizations that come into a company and, you know, they do their studies. They talk about, you know, activity-based working. They talk about this. They talk about that. 
But it's always interesting how you come away from that and the offices always look the same. Like, and I, the, the first realization of that for me was when I worked at CBRE and had the opportunity to go to multiple offices around the globe. Yeah. And walking into the offices, different brands, different, obviously different experiences. But it was like, after I think it was like the fifth or sixth one, it's like, my gosh, like these offices are all kind of designed the same way. And I've often heard from people, it's kind of like the cookie cutter of design. Right. I mean, there's certain things that haven't changed, right? Because there's, because we still are, you know, fundamentally working and sitting at desk and a lot of, you know, whether it's paper or computers or whatever that is. And if you think about it, houses haven't radically changed that much either. I mean, they, they kind of slowly evolve. So I don't think there's uh, a need to totally throw everything away, but I do believe that there's a huge opportunity now to do things better. And there are some great precedents of what that is that you could walk into and say, wow, this is radically different than what we saw, uh, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, even 10 years ago, perhaps. But, uh, you know, we still in a lot of offices have rows and rows of assigned work points where people are supposed to go. And you know, we don't even design zoos for animals like that. Even animals we allow to free range and free roam, right? We don't even do that. But for, for office workers, I just there's this mental thing that a lot of companies have not been able to get over. And I think part of that is forever we rewarded people with space. And so you might have spent your whole career trying to get that you know, that corner office or get that office. And now that you have it, you don't necessarily want to relinquish that. Right. Or, um, you know, I just think there's, there's certain aspects that people kind of have gotten stuck into. And, and quite frankly, see, Sandra, one of the problems is you and I, and probably a lot of the people that are listening to this have the curse of knowledge. That's we, true. We know what's out there. We've seen really amazing spaces, but for a lot of our clients, They've never gone through this before. They've never seen it before. They've never seen anything but what they sit in every day. And so what we are proposing to them might seem radical. And and I always say to my clients, it's like, listen, I'm not trying to get you to, to 2030. I would love to get you to 2030. I'm just trying to get you into this century, right? Like get you out of 1990. Like, so I'm not talking bleeding, cutting edge for a lot of you. It's just like, let's, let's just catch up a little bit. Baby, the baby steps. So interesting point that you made about the fact that a lot of companies haven't seen sort of some of the stuff that we're we're talking about, or as you say, the curse of knowledge that we have. Um, but what's interesting to me is, you know, how do you think uh, the, the pandemic has played into that? Because I think back on the resistance to change that was met by the employees, you know, first and foremost, it's like, what do you mean you're going to get rid of my desk? What do you mean you're taking me out of the office? What do you mean we're going to go to open office space or drop the panels and mm-hmm. kind of all of those discussions? But now that people have been, at least in the knowledge worker community, office community, people that have been working from home for the last, are we almost at three years? <laughs> Two years? Almost, almost years? at three, yeah, three, almost yeah. At three years, yeah. It's kind of like, I, I don't know. Like I, I struggle with, you know, you sort of have experienced what it's like to be able to work outside of the office. Are you finding that employees are still struggling with what happens in the physical office? Well, I, I, I think there's multiple things at play here. OK, number one, there are a whole lot of offices that are not designed well. You just need to be honest yeah. about that. They really aren't. Uh, and so they're, they're not great spaces necessarily to be, but we suffered through it because we really didn't know anything else or didn't have an alternative. 
Number two, we have an amazingly empowered workforce that, quite frankly, early on in the, in the pandemic, I think a lot of companies asked the wrong question, and that is, what do you want? And it's not that I don't care what you want, but they're thinking self-centrically about, what do I want right now? Do I really want to drive to the office? Probably not, right? But they're not thinking about what's right for the business, what's right for their coworkers. They're not even really thinking about what's right for their own professional development or themselves down the line, mental health, um, physical health, you know, connections, ice, you know, all of those things. And I think that the third thing that is happening here, if you asked me yes. what I wanted for dinner, if I answered that question honestly, I would say I want chocolate for dinner, but I don't eat chocolate for dinner because I know the consequences of it. Okay. The workforce right now is being asked basically a similar question, but they don't necessarily understand or haven't necessarily experienced the consequences of what they're asking. And what we're starting to see after three years of this is that there are certain people that are like, I am very lonely. I am very isolated. You know, quality of what is being produced is starting to be impacted. People's physical and mental health is being impacted. Uh, people, you know, churn has gone up because people aren't as connected to people that they don't, don't see. And so, we're just starting to understand the ramifications of that. And, you know, you and I have been working with clients for 30 years that have been working remotely. And we know what worked and what didn't. And we've been working with clients for 10 years that have adopted hybrid working. And again, we know what works and what doesn't. But a vast majority of individuals don't. And they were asked the wrong question which is what do you want? Not, e- not even what you should do or what's good for you or what's right, but just, hey, hey, you know, what do you want? And so we're always going to default to what is easiest in that moment. Yeah, I think you made some great points. The other thing, too, is, is that if you think about, like you made some comments about what's good for the business, what's good for the team, what's good for just the employees of the company. Actually, interestingly enough, I've had two conversations now, probably in the last two or three weeks, where some people sort of referenced, you know, some of the studies that have been done, right? So mm-hmm. whether they're like academic studies or studies. And, and my comment was, is that, well, that goes back to like pre-pandemic times. And I think I made this comment in a podcast that I did with David Gray not too long ago, was that conversation around what's good for us is based on an experience before the pandemic. Right. And so it's almost like, is that still even relevant or valid? Because that's all we knew. Right. That was kind of what we knew to be. This is how we work and this is how we benefit from collaboration and innovation. And this is how we do it. And so in the three years, because literally from, you know, what was it, March of 2020, everything changed and it was sink or swim, figure out and people figured it out. It's kind of like. This is, I think, where the debate is, is that some people feel that, well, it doesn't have to be the way that it was. And teams can benefit in this new way of working where you don't necessarily have to be reliant on an office setting as we think of or how we used to think about it before. And that's not to say that you don't need an office, because like you said, I think the whole benefit or the value of hybrid is having access to an office. Right. right. And, and it's just and, the way you interact with it is different than how you interacted with it before. Yeah. And it's interesting. You know, we did a survey before COVID, but we did the same thing after COVID to say who are the most engaged and or disengaged. The most disengaged employees 
tended to be the ones that were always working remotely. They didn't feel as connected to their coworkers or to the mission of the organization. They, they often felt left out. And we did it again after COVID, and we, we got the same result. The second group, though, that feels the most disengaged are the ones that are always in the office because you don't feel like you're empowered. You don't feel like you're trusted. And you start to take for granted your coworkers and everything. And then it is, you know, your primary space. The people that are the most engaged are the ones that have a little bit of control or freedom and find that balance between appreciating when I'm in the office and appreciating the things I can do when I'm there, but also having space time that I can work remotely to do other things. And that really drives us to a whole nother conversation about, well, then what is the purpose of, of place and are we designing for the right purpose? And I, and I, I just want to be really careful because what, what we're finding right now is, you know, some people are on totally one side of this argument. Others yes. are totally on the others. And most people, they're, they're basing their opinion based on their own personal situation. And I now live in the gray because, it, you know, just because something's right for you doesn't mean it's right for everybody else. So if you would have asked me during the pandemic if I was functioning okay working from home, I would have said, Yes, I have a, you know, I have a house in the suburbs with a room that's set up for an office, great Wi-Fi, great infrastructure, you know, limited distractions. I don't have little kids running around or whatever. Um, if you would have asked my kippers, kids in parents' pockets, eroding retirement, who were sitting in their bedrooms in my basement working the first year of the pandemic, they would have said it was horrible because they did, you know, even the same situation, kind of, but mm-hmm. they didn't have a network. They didn't know what the expectations were. They didn't have uh, the coworkers or understand the protocols. They were sitting in a small bedroom trying to look professional, right? And so I think what we need to understand is just because it works for you does not necessarily mean that it works for everybody else. There's a whole variety of scenarios. And so we have to create this ecosystem of solutions that, really addresses the diversity and the complexity of the workforce that we are dealing with today. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a great point, because I think that's one of the things that hybrid certainly enables is uh, to support more of that diversity and inclusion. And I think if anything, it's it's really kind of lifted back the covers, if you will, of some of the challenges. Right. So, you know, as you talk about the fact of not everybody has access to, you know, the same spaces at home and some people were thriving during the pandemic in the sense that they had the space to be able to continue on their workday, like as if they were in the office and others struggled. Um, and, and I think that that the concept of being able to, ha- like I said before, have access to an office space where people can feel like they can be their best is really important. I think the other yeah. piece too is the fact of you made you made a comment about like just, you know, the whole sort of the personal experience. And what's always what's fascinating to me is if you think about life in general and just kind of the advancement of technology and how virtually everything we do yeah. is personalized, right? Like you get in your car and it's like your seat adjusts and, you know, your mirrors adjust and all that stuff based on what you prefer. You go yeah. to the mall and you start getting bombarded with marketing because they know that you're in there and they know how you shop. And so it's kind of like, you know, get a discount here, scary, get a discount actually, there, right? Yes. It is. Yeah. It is. But it's kind of, it's creepy, but cool kind of at the same time. Cause then it's, you know, if you think about it from the standpoint of, you know, what's most important to people, it's not wasting time. 
right? And so yeah. if you have an objective or whatever, it's kind of like it's done for you. You're off to getting, you know, to what you need to get need to get done. And, and it's often been a question that's been asked, at least I've heard this over and over again over the years, is why is personalization such a taboo thing in the workplace? Like the same level of personalization where you're collecting information and you're basically adjusting the workplace or the experience to how people want to work. Like we try, but we just never can get there because it keeps changing because it's so different for every single person. Sandra, come on, you, you're going to know the answer to this one, right? So <laughs> have you ever walked through a space and come across that one workstation where somebody just took it to the extreme and they've got like 25 beanie babies <laughs> hanging or every, like, it's just, it's, it's like a kid's room, right? I, I think there's a few things. First of all, we all have a space that we can do whatever we want in. It's called our house. Go do whatever you want in your house. Now, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't personalize, but I'm going to change the word personalize to stylization. And I think if we are returning to workplaces that are stagnant, that are sterile, that have been wiped clean of everything, it is just not going to feel comfortable. And we as humans want these elements of hospitality and or comfort around us. And the, the more high tech we go, the more high touch, we'll call that, mm-hmm. we see our clients wanting. Um, when it comes to personalizing things, you know, you're, most people right now, their pictures are here yes. on their laptops. And if you're moving around, um, you know, you, you don't necessarily always want to be in highly customized or personal spaces. And what you find comforting your neighbor could find very distressing or uncomfortable, quite frankly. Um, and we know that visual clutter is one of those things that is grossly understudied and grossly under ignored. But 62% of women have a real issue with what is in their viewpoint, clutter, chaos, and it, it impacts us and our ability to to function at a high level. So what we need to do is find areas where we can celebrate without creating and just dumping tons of stuff in the workspace. So in most of the designs that we're doing, we're creating neighborhood-based zones. So it's kind of like a space that everybody can go and kind of feel grounded, right, and connected. But then there are opportunities for them to celebrate the team. So it's going from a me mentality to a we mentality. Just think about a locker. In a locker room, you've got, you, you can personalize your locker mm-hmm. in another workplace, but your area is really more about your team identity and your group identity. And I think it's important to have a, a little bit of a balance about both, but we're coming to the office to really be part of those teams. And so creating spaces that celebrate that, whether it's, a wall where we can all put our pictures and then there's a wall with all of our team awards and our, you know, what we're working on and moments of pride from an organizational standpoint. I think, you know, it's that balance that we're trying to find. And it's not either or and it's not no personality whatsoever, but um, I think we just need to do it more strategically and more intentionally. Right. So on on the note of personalization, what I'm I totally agree. Like I've seen many of those stations look like just junk on on top of the desk. Complete. Well, you can actually see the desk. You can just barely yeah. see the computer. Yeah, and you feel um, sorry for the people working yeah, around that. Working around it's them, just like wow. <laughs> but what I'm I'm actually referring to is like in the here and now. So thinking about the technology that's available to us, there's like you know um, uh, comfort sensors, for example, that you know oh. deal with temperature, lighting, noise. 
uh, you know, that kind of thing that yeah. as an employee, imagine walking into a space. Intuitive space is what you're referring to. Yeah, it's kind of it knows right. sort of the type of environment that you like to work in yeah. and therefore directs you to a specific space. Like when I think about design, it's like even as you mentioned, it's like, you know, there's a team area like that seems to be, you know, a common thing where it's like, OK, you're optimizing, but you're still creating an area that the team knows that that's where they go. But right. if you were to, as you say, use it more of an intuitive space approach, it's kind of like I'm coming into the office for a very specific reason. Yes, I belong to the finance team or the marketing team, but the people that I actually work with might not necessarily be on those teams because I, you know, I want to co-locate with these other teams. And so based on your behavior and who you're actually working with, why not have it so that that data then helps you know where those people are? Maybe you like where there's a lot of buzz in the office versus wanting more of a quiet space that basically can direct you based on what your mood is or what your preference is for that for that day. Yeah. So we're going to call that intuitive workspaces or, or um, ITO 2.0. Yeah. And so right now, when Internet of Things was really initially activated and started and started to emerge, and right now we have a ton of clients that are rushing to put sensors everywhere, we always say, what is what is the problem you're trying to solve and what are you trying to do? Because there's multiple ways that you could do it. But sensors are collecting information from the environment, from the surrounding, and sometimes from the individual. And I think one of the things that we know is people don't really like to be monitored. They'll find ways around that. But if we can take that information and empower people with that to give them the opportunity to have more control, that can be really beneficial. So um, I think one of the things that we're starting to see more and more well, I'm just going to be honest. One of the top three things that everybody complains about in workspaces, and you know what they are, right? So it's always, it's too loud, it's too bright or too dark, and or I have no access to natural daylight, and I'm cold or I'm hot. Hot, right. <laughs> so I'm just going to acknowledge something that our industry has skirted around for a long time, and I'm just going to be brutally honest. Nobody in our industry can create a space that is the perfect temperature for every individual at every given time. That is an impossible task. You are always going to have some people that are a little cold or might be a little hot. And part of it is our physical bodies. Part of it is our layering, whether we choose or not to. But part of it is where we sit. And the sun moves and so should we. And so if you have the Internet of Things that's collecting information, it can feed into an app that says... Where you're sitting, it's 68 degrees, but on the other side of the building, it's 72 because the sun is over there and has been coming in through the windows and it's warmer on that side of the building or it's, you know, something else has happened. There's more people over there. So there's, you know, rise of body temperature, you know, or it's brighter over there or the person that is annoying you because they're talking so loud. There's a spot over here where the sound level is much quieter or it's the right hum that you want or, uh, your your coworkers are all sitting over here. Would you like to book a spot by them? So I think what we haven't necessarily done is take this technology um, to that next level. Some companies are starting to do that, which is fabulous, and I know you all are one that is starting to do that. But some companies are starting to do it, but, we, but we're not doing it enough. And I think we, you know I think our clients need to adapt to that and to think about how can we leverage technology to really improve the overall human experience and the human condition. Well, that's actually interesting because it's definitely something that we are exploring and we've been toying around with um, comfort sensors for a while. We actually 
met with the well organization fit well mm. to kind of look at, you know, how does all of that play into right. the certification? What's their process? And then could you potentially automate that where you score based on how that information comes through where it's more legit because the number of points that you get or, or capture points, if you will, of those various variables is much greater than if somebody just comes in with a clipboard yeah. and says, okay, temperature is this. Yeah. Okay. You're certified yeah. and it's one day, right? <laughs> and Sandra, I'm going to go back to something that you, you said earlier, you alluded to, and I've said for, you know, for years, the auto, the auto industry is kicking our butt. Let's just be honest. Yeah. You know, I can start my car from inside my house get it nice and warm, walk down, don't even have to touch a key. It automatically unlocks because it's me. It knows that it's me because of the fob in my pocket, and it automatically adjusts everything in that car to my preset preferences. Even syncing my phone with my dashboard or the light or the temperature or the, the music that's on or any and all of those things. In the workplace, most people are still crawling around under their desk trying to find a power outlet. I mean, <laughs> we have not even begun to tap into that in many cases. And and yes, it's a little bit of a different scale. And yes, you know, you, you know, people can choose, you know, that level of sophistication, but it doesn't mean that we can't do that in workplaces. And I think we have an opportunity to do so much more. But most of our clients are terrified about technology because they're afraid that they're going to buy something that is then going to become, you know, obsolete or their people aren't going to know how to do it. And part of that is the fault of the AVIT industry. You know, for, well, I'm going to share the blame here. Interior designers are not incorporating technology as part of the solutions early enough in the process to make them as successful as they could be. If I design a conference room to the wrong proportions, no technology is going to be able to solve that because I made choices in the beginning that absolutely hampered that. So we need to work together. But the, the AVIT community doesn't understand digital fitness. And I cannot tell you how many times I've walked into a conference room with a $50,000 piece of AV on the wall that basically is a piece of art because nobody knows how to use it because they sold something that was above the ability of the individuals or, or their desire. And so they didn't align the solution with the digital fitness or the, the uh, abilities of those users. And so it was all for naught. Yeah, I completely agree. I've seen that many, many times as well. And I think it's absolutely true. So people go into these rooms and it's like, how do I turn the TV on or how do I get my image up on the screen? And then they're like, oh, forget it. You just kind of go back to, you know, what the, the tried and true process. But it's interesting, too, like just hearing you speak of how, you know, in let's say 30 years, 35 years, we've seen all of this advancement. And yet companies are it feels like. Like, quite frankly, it feels like it's almost too late. Like, that's kind of been my the feeling that I've had since the pandemic. It's like maybe in pre-pandemic times, there would be a much greater appetite. Maybe not. I mean, we've seen that there wasn't much of an appetite to change. Right. And so it's kind of like, yeah, it works the way that it is. Let's keep the workstations, you know, the the cubicle farms that still exist. Surprisingly, like people are shocked when they hear that that still exists. But it does because companies don't spend that much capital on renovating their offices. It's kind of like if it's not broke, don't fix it. Like just keep it, keep it as is. But now that things have like moved ahead quite substantially. By the way, I'm going to pause you for a minute. Okay. It It is broken. You're just suffering through it. Through it. <laughs> okay. It's not like it's not That's broken. That's a good point. It's broken. Broken. You're just, right. 
you're just hobbling along. So it's kind of like, so is, is it too late? Like are companies willing to spend the money to make the improvement? Like when we were at IFMA or World Workplace, yeah. you know, a lot of the comments was, well, there's only 25 or 30 percent of the people or nobody's back in the office. So we're not going to be spending any money on changing the workplace. And it's kind of like, OK, okay so but, what does that mean? <laughs> OK, okay, but let, let me just take exactly what you just said and put it in another context. Nobody's coming to their, our restaurant because the food is just OK. So why does it matter? Make the food better. Better then you might get more people coming to your restaurant, right? Part of the reason that people aren't coming back, part of the reason, is that we aren't creating spaces that are commute-worthy. And we're not creating amazing experiences for people in places that they want to be. And there are some companies around the world that are doing that, and they're getting a much higher percentage of return. And I think, you know, that that goes to show that, depending on what your business models are. Some people can function just fine with their people working remotely. You know, honestly, they can. Other ones are really going to struggle. It's against their their culture or their organizational DNA, and they need to be together. And so it's about creating a, a compelling environment that really can do that. But I think our industry right now is being set up for failure. There are so many people that are coming and saying, Sandra, I need you to create the workplace of the future so that everybody will want to be in it and it will solve my hybrid problem. Okay. Hybrid is the most complex model out there. It is the hardest to pull off, quite frankly. And it is much more of an operational issue than a workplace solution issue. That's part of it, but it's not all of it. I can create an amazing workplace, but if you don't have the policies or the procedures or the culture or it doesn't align with your DNA or your work styles and what people need to be doing, it's all for naught. And so you need to understand who you are. You need to understand what your workers really need, not what they, what they want, but could they and should they, and then create the different scenarios about, okay, well, if we want them to be coming in for this, then let's design the space around that. And if we want them to be doing this at home or remotely, then let's ensure they have the ability to focus on that as well. I mean, because what's going to happen here, and I'm willing to bet that 80% of companies are not going to put in the work that they need to make this really be successful, and they're going to struggle. Because hybrid also has the risk not only being the best of everything, it can also be the worst of everything. If I am commuting to an office to sit on a Zoom call all day, that's the worst of everything. Because now I'm not even talking to my my coworkers. I'm actually blatantly almost ignoring them or trying to get away from them. So we have to think about what are people doing? And we also have to be smarter about how we're spending our time. You know, don't book back-to-back-to-back-to-back Zoom calls on a day that you're going to be in the office, that you're going in to be with other people. You know, have live meetings. Yeah, no, that's very true. I think, too, what you say is is that, you know, if you design better spaces, you know, you may entice people to, and I don't like to use the word entice because we've heard it quite a bit, but that's essentially what you're trying to do is make the space more attractive so that people want to come to the space. But, you know, my thinking is always from an office perspective, maybe Mm -hmm. in other scenarios that would work because they serve different purposes. So, for example, you don't go to a restaurant just to hang out or you don't go to a hotel just to hang out. You're there for a very specific purpose. So if you're in a hotel, usually you're there for 
you know, if you're traveling, maybe you might be there for a conference or a business meeting of some kind. And so you're using the facility and therefore are there using their the amenities that are in and around. Work is a little bit different because it's like I said, it's kind of like you can work from home. You can collaborate with people virtually. And so to me, it feels like the challenge is, yes, we could potentially spend the capital in you know, upgrading our office, making it a better place, but will that guarantee that people will come to the office? And I think that's where there's the hesitation of the spend because that's a a lot of capital that you potentially could sink into your real estate that maybe that capital could be used in your learning and development or could be used in, you know, training or what other programs that you typically haven't been able to fund, right? So let's let's dissect something that that we all say but we need to be a little bit more honest and transparent about. We can all work remotely. Can we? 42% of the U.S. workforce does not have the option to work remotely. They're either service industry, they're specialty equipment like labs, they're clinical workers, they're hospital workers, 42%. And we, by the way, have the highest percentage it's 58% of knowledge workers that could work remotely, 58%. That is the highest percentage almost anywhere in the world of people that have the ability to do it. So this whole conversation is about about half of the population. And by the way, how do you think all those people that don't have a choice feel about us dedicating all this attention <laughs> and time so that we all don't have to commute? Right. right. Like, wah, wah, wah. Sorry for you. Right. Like the rest of us don't have a choice. And we run the risk of becoming siloed and creating tears. OK, so now let's take that 58 percent of that 58 percent that could. There are several that don't have the infrastructure or their house isn't set up for it. Or like I was explaining with my my kids, they don't you know, they have multiple roommates, you know, distractions at home. Yeah, no privacy. Um, yeah. Right. And or they need direction. OK, so now let's take that big chunk. Out. And then there are people that are doing things like I go to meetings with clients all the time. I can't really do that, you know, and, and or they're coming in so we can have great sessions. Right. So there are a whole group of individuals that there's a big chunk of what they do that can't necessarily be done remotely or at home. And then you have that whole thing about, well, you know, culture. And I, I find it fascinating that we as a society have so quickly decided that remote learning was a disaster for our children, that most of those kids have lost two years of education, academic advancement. It's taken a mental health toll on them and a socialization toll on them. Yet we haven't equated that same, all of those things that impacted those individuals when they were in a very formidable time to emerging young professionals who are trying to navigate what is a professional world like and how do I model my behavior and how do I build my network and who should I be doing and how do I learn and how, you know, all of those things. We haven't understood that those individuals are also negatively being impacted by this. And I think it's part of the reason why that group tends to be the Gen Z's and, the, and you know, the younger millennials tend to be the ones that are the most excited about coming back and actually see more value in shared spaces because they see there are things that they can get there that they can't. Quite frankly, it's people like myself who have my network set up. I know what I'm supposed to do. I travel a lot. I, I don't necessarily report to one office. My connections within the firm, my expectations, I, I can work very independently. I'm a self-starter. I'm perfect 
to work remotely. But I come in because I feel like I have an obligation to the younger generation to not only be there for them, but I need them too. Like yeah. to figure out all of this stuff, right? Yeah, like this morning, yeah. I literally went in the studio. I'm like, <laughs> okay, somebody sent me this. What does this mean? I don't understand the social. And they were like, oh, that means this, right? <laughs> it's very helpful, right? Or, yes. or can you get this to work for me technology-wise, right? You know, but I, I just, I think sometimes we're better together. And I, and I think we all say we can work remotely. That is true for a portion of the population. But there's a massive group of individuals that they don't have that choice and or it's not the preferred choice for them. And we need to be honest about that. Yeah. And I think I think that that's true. And I, I, I don't think I've heard anybody say that, you know, everybody gets to work from home. I think it's more when you look at. Oh, there are people that say. Oh, really? By the way. Oh, there are absolutely people that say. And by the way, the majority of the people that say that are people that are independent and have always worked from home and do their own kind of independent research or analysis or whatever. Right, right. They, they say that. Interesting. Yeah, no, to me, I'm just thinking more along the lines of your typical, you know, knowledge worker, office worker. You know, we're not looking at yeah. retail or healthcare, kind of those other spaces that are still office workers, but they're very specialized in what they do because of the need for equipment and kind of, you know, if they're yeah. in labs and stuff like that. Obviously, you can't do that. Place you can't do that from right. home. Yeah. Um, but it, but the the one thing that I was going to say was when you think about the fact of being able to work remotely, it's kind of like, well, yeah, you can work remotely. But I don't again, same thing is I don't think that it's an all or nothing like I think that's kind of I think we finally have come to that conclusion that no one's really I mean, let's say not say no one because people do. But the reality of hybrid is, is that you have to still have some level of a physical place to go to as an option. So whether it's yeah. the vanity space of the office or yeah. a co-working space or whatever. But I think the other part is when you were talking about like learning and, you know, mentoring for the younger population, right. the one thing that's also been brought up many times is, you know, you look at the way Gen, Gen Y and millennials function. They have their face in their phone all day long. All of their relationships, their friendships, their the communication and things that they do, the planning, all of that stuff is all done via technology. Heck, even like dating is and, like. And maybe that's why we have the highest rate of teen depression and more teens feel isolated and alone. They've never been more connected and never felt so alone and isolated in their lives. And that isn't a positive thing in all right. regards. They they network in a different way. But in, when push comes to shove, are, are your 1,000 LinkedIn friends going to be there for you when you need sure. something or your Facebook? It's a very superficial world that they're living in. And they also are being exposed. I mean, Facebook depression is a real thing. You're, yes. Nobody posts what a crappy day they're having. Everybody posts their A song, their top, their top hit from their A side. Nobody post their b-side but then you're you know we are going on and looking at everybody in their one glorious moment the rest of the week could have been horrible but we just see that one glorious moment and are comparing what we're going through to that and it creates this false reality that everybody is living this amazing life and we're the only ones that might either feel isolated or lonely or whatever that is and i and i think that yes they connect in a different way. That doesn't mean that they are antisocial. That does not mean that they don't need to come together. And and it's great. Uh, there's a guy, Scott Galloway, who uh, mm-hmm. um, and he he and Michael Schmerkanis were having a great conversation recently about 
what this is doing from a societal standpoint. It's creating silos. We're isolating individuals, young people. You know, where, you know, where do you meet people today, right? And how do you connect? And if you look at what has gone on in the United States in the last few years during COVID, the, the amount of rabbit holes that have popped up that people have been able to go down because they are more isolated, they have more time to do that, and they're going down these silos. It's frightening. And I, I don't think that's a good thing in any way, shape, or form. And I think we're going to look back at this and say, this, this was a perfect storm that created a societal rift that could take us a long time to come out of. So here's a, here's a different perspective. So do you think, do you think that what we're experiencing is sort of the opposite of conforming? Like if you think about like we started at the beginning that, you know, the office, for example, is everybody had a place to go and you conformed to a culture, you conformed to a way of working, you conformed to a way of socializing and collaborating and all of that stuff. And it was very, you put your blinders on and that's what you did. I know from, again, personal experience, bias sort of, you know, recognized yeah. is that you're online and the entire world opens up to you because it's like if you have the will to connect with people and engage in conversations, I can honestly say I have learned more in the last three years probably than I have in interacting with people throughout my entire career just because of the the, the geography or the connection with people from different parts of the world and learning well, about what their experience has been like versus yeah. my experience and then kind of reflecting on that, which I would have never had that experience if I was at work and just doing what was expected of me every day. Okay, so, so I'll give you the counterpoint to that. So I traveled all the time. And when I traveled, I got to see things and experience things in a way that being on a phone call with somebody in Finland wasn't the same as meeting somebody in Finland and seeing the culture and being there. And so I actually I feel like on one hand, from an exposure standpoint, it's diminished. But to your point, we have learned a lot in the last few years because and I don't think it's because we're remote. I think it's because the status quo was challenged. Everything was thrown up in the air and we all were forced to really rethink what was on cruise control before. Right. And I don't think that just because you're coming into the office, not everybody is a conformist. I think mm -hmm. what you're doing is you're seeing what the expectation is and you're seeing different examples of a variety of different people. And you get to help understand, you know, you get to help find that sweet spot. You get to understand what is expected of you. You get to see how people interact with each other. I mean, socialization is really important. And, you know, the last three years of people being very isolated, I think that's had some real consequences on people's mental health, on their emotional health, on their social health, on all of those things. And, you know, do, do we need to always be together? No. Having a balance between being able to be with people physically and engaging, but then also being able to get exposure to different things virtually could be a a great blend. But if they're out of sync with each other, yep. I think it gets dangerous. Yeah. So here's the other the other argument that I hear quite often, too, is, you know, the socialization or just social relationships at work and the value of those social relationships versus personal ones. And again, people could be speaking from personal experience, because to your point is there's a lot of loneliness. There's a lot of people who don't have friends, whether it's by 
choice. Well, if it's by choice, it's different. But sometimes you're just in a circumstance where it's very hard. You know, there could yeah. be people who are introverted and kind of suffer suffer through that. Some people enjoy it. Some people don't. I'm one of them that happens to kind of be on the fence. I'm introverted, but then I can be extroverted depending on my mood. Um, but I actually believe like it or being not, I, by myself. I am too. Right? Yeah. I am too. And people, but, you people know, are shocked when I say that. Yeah, same same with me. But, you know, what's interesting is when I first started working 100% remote, I remember, I think it was about by the third month, th- between three and six months, I did feel the loneliness, which surprised me because it was like, hey, I love, like, this is recharge for me when I'm by myself. And then once I got past that, it was like, okay, I would still feel every once in a while like I need to be around people. I used to go to like the Starbucks cafe and just sit there. And even if I didn't know anybody there, just to be around people. Right. Yeah, so, so I'm not I'm not going to I'm not going to lie. Uh, two years in, I did not feel lonely. And two years in, if somebody would have said, you got to stay in lockdown for a whole nother year, I would have been like, I'm down with it. I'm, down. I'm good. <laughs> I'm cool. Like, and, and people are shocked when I say that because I literally was never home before. Maybe that's part of it. But I regenerate myself by um, when I first started going back into the office, I'm like, oh, this is going to suck. I, you know, I have to get on, you know, I have to commute. I look forward to those days now <laughs> because A, it feels good, right? To, yeah. to actually, you know, and, and I hate getting dressed up, but you know, you know, I actually enjoy <laughs> it. The commute gives me time to listen. Like I listen to the radio and I don't do that at home. I just go from the, you know, bedroom, exercise, breakfast, work. There is no mental, like I can just kind of, and I actually enjoy. You know, uh, sitting in the car and listening to music or listening to a podcast or catching up on those things. And it's a mental break. It forces me to stop. I mean, the problem is that during the pandemic, I think it took a mental and physical toll on us that we're not aware of. First of all, most people sat stagnantly for hours at end in yeah. one place. And our number of steps that we took a day plummeted for most individuals. Second of all, being on Zoom calls is more draining than being in in person because you're con- you know you can't move you're constantly on you've got all these people that are staring at you but there's a great study that says people have spent 252% more time on Zoom calls mm-hmm. all right so Sandra here's a question for you what percentage of time that people are on Zoom calls do you think they're multitasking oh probably 70% <laughs> okay most people say 90 to 100 but let, let's just take your end can you multitask no what happens when you multitask? You're taxing your brain double and you're doing both of the things that you're trying to do in a diminished capacity. The quality is being reduced. You're making more mistakes. You're not really paying attention. You're not processing it the same way that you do if you listen to something. And so I, I we're not giving ourselves any mental or physical breaks and coming to the office where you can have that water cooler moment or have that exchange with somebody that you may not have made time for is building back that social capital is connecting us in ways, making those connections so that when we go back and work remotely, we're recharged and can focus and, or we have those connections now that we can pull back in and rely on. Yeah. And so I, I think it's a balance. I really do. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because I actually wrote a, um, a blog back at, I think it was, in April or May of 2020, where I kind of predicted that, you know, the future of the office, again, just based on my personal experience, it was the social day out, right? So you work from home four days a week, five days a week, and then you're like, you know what, Monday, I'm going to go to the office. And to me, it wasn't a 
work day because I wasn't sitting at a desk. I was there to meet with colleagues. Like I'd plan the day to say, okay, I'm going to take advantage of this day and reconnect with all these people and talk about projects or things that we were working on. And it was like a moment to just recharge. And then I'd come back and I'd be good for another five or six days. You you know, you have those moments that just stick in your head and it's like so crazy. You're like, what? The first day that we came back into the office, uh, and this is almost a year ago, but one of my colleagues came up and he says, oh, I'm so excited to be here, you know, whatever. And I was like over there working on my laptop because I didn't even bring my laptop. Today is not a laptop kind of day. Today is a meet with everybody. And I, I literally had heart palpitations. Like, I don't think I'm ever, ever on vacation. I don't think I'm ever more than a few steps away from my laptop. Never. And I was and the thought of me leaving it at home and coming to the office and just ignoring it for an entire day was like, I, I literally it was like, I now know what a junkie feels like with withdrawals, right? Like I couldn't <laughs> even conceive of what he had just done. I was like, what? How? Yeah. Like, how do you? Yeah. But that's not healthy either. That's the no, hustle culture, right? No, so. it's not. Don't do what I do. I'm, no. I'm just, I, you know, I tell my children that all the time and they're like, yeah, don't worry, we won't. Um, but. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So another uh, thing that I wanted to mention also is when you were talking before about like, you know, the learning experiences that you've had through travel and thinking Mm -hmm. about now sort of the changes. I mean, again, this is something that's been talked about for years and Mm -hmm. years and years, and it feels like there's more focus on it now is what about, you know, sustainability? So, again, it's, you know, using technology in the place of physical travel. Yes, there's more of an advantage to meet with people in person, but at what cost from an environmental point of view? Like, where do you see that sort of playing into how right, we think me, about work and relationships and their interactions? Yeah, so so let me just play devil's advocate here. Um, number one, our industry isn't even coming close to addressing what we need to on as far as regeneration. So I don't even want to say the word that begins with an S because nobody wants to just sustain Right. We all want to thrive and we are beyond just sustaining because we're already in a bad spot. We've got to regenerate and rejuvenate and we need to go way above and beyond. Okay, but, you know, we're all saying, well, we're not driving to the office, but the office is still running and is still being warmed and cooled. And now we're running most of our houses, which aren't as energy efficient as most of our office buildings, are running at a higher capacity because we're cooling and heating and using the electricity there. We're all paying for that. And and our houses are belching out carbon while we're saying, but we're not, you know, we're not using the office and, you know, the, the office. But it's still on as if we were there. And, yes, we're not commuting. But have you noticed how many delivery guys are on the street right now. I mean, I find it I find it shocking that nobody has raised the alarm bells that we all go to the grocery store with reusable bags so we don't have to use a paper bag. But when we order anything online or food, a person is driving to our house in a car in a grossly with a package that is gross excess for one single item that is being delivered, or maybe two or three if you bundle, um, regularly. The number of 
delivery drivers that are on the road, the number of Uber drivers, the number of DoorDash and food drivers that are just wandering around waiting for us to call and need something or whatever, is replaced us being on in cars. And so it's not a it's not a clean swap. It's not an easy we just we're not doing that anymore, so look how much we're saving. And travel, uh internet like flights is mm-hmm. absolutely a big issue. Uh, but I think what we're going to see is a lot of our clients are saying, you don't necessarily always have to be there. We're going to be more strategic. I mean, I used to be in an airport almost every single day. Um, now I'm taking trips every week, but it might be to one or two destinations. I get to actually wake up in a hotel room I fell asleep in, right? You know, like I just, you know, like, <laughs> or go to sleep in when I woke up. Um, and I think it will, I think it'll be a combination. I don't think we're going to have as much, but when we do it, it's going to be more meaningful and, and impactful because we have to reduce our, our yeah. footprint. Yeah. So let's just kind of switch a little bit, just talk a little bit about the design world. So obviously we talked mm-hmm. a little bit about hybrid and just kind of all the yeah. sort of systemic things, but how do you see the, the practice of design potentially changing? going forward do you think that there's required changes like thinking about how you used to design before and yeah. how you design now what what do you see as potential changes that are necessary i want to give a verbal slap to our entire industry because if i go to one more conference and hear people throw up their arms and say who knows or people say well nobody knows anything so we're all just guessing i'm i'm literally going to just go ballistic so first of all we know a lot We've been working for, you know, any anybody that's been in this industry and in this field, we know a lot. Again, we've had clients that have been doing this for a long time, and there are absolutely lessons learned. And if you're not looking and applying those lessons learned or understanding why those other programs either were successful or failed, who's doing this well and what they're doing, then shame on you because you're just not looking for what's clearly out there, and there there are precedents out there. Number two, we've waited our, or this industry that we're in, has tried forever to get people to take what we do seriously. Now the entire world is asking us, what is the future of work? And our answer is, duh, like, I don't know. (laughs) Like, that that's not an acceptable answer. And and are we going to get it 100% right? No. Are we going to get it 80% right compared to somebody who knows nothing about what we're doing, totally guessing and only getting it 20% right? I'm going to go with us, and I'm going to say, yeah, we're probably going to get it more accurate than people that are just throwing their hands up and totally guessing. And even companies that are piloting, if you pilot or test everything, you test nothing. So I'm thrilled that we're going through a period of piloting and people are experimenting and they're doing new things. But you have to really be very scientific about what it is that you're doing so that you're not just throwing a bunch of stuff in there randomly and hoping something works and that they'll 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 say, hey, this is this the one thing, you know, we have to be more strategic about it so that the chances of it being successful are higher and that we can measure what really had an impact or not. And so now is our opportunity to step up and to do amazing things. And for the younger generation of designers, I've waited 38 years for this moment to come and we need to capitalize it. We may not have this again. You know, we're, we're, we're going to be in a rocky period for, for a while. And then I think we'll, we'll have it more frequently. I don't think we'll go for these long periods of it, just status quo. Mm-hmm. But this is a really unique opportunity for us to be forward thinking and not just address the problem at hand, but all of those things that are on the horizon. 
you know, and, and it really take a much broader approach to how should we work, where should we work, what is the workforce, what should we do, and what's the right solution. And I don't think we're taking that broad enough view and doing that future casting to really think about that. So we spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, robotics, artificial intelligence, um, holograms, how those are going to impact us, how the the college issues are going to impact us, the resourcing issues are going to impact us, all of those things, because they will impact us. And we aren't thinking enough to see the writing on the wall. And so our 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 industry right now should be helping our clients do scenario planning, which is we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but we have a pretty good understanding of one of these three things is likely to happen. What are you going to do when it does happen? Or are you just going to wait till it happens and then get caught flat-footed and then try to react? So I, I believe we should be more proactive and really say, okay, well, what if six months from now people aren't coming back? What if six months from now a lot of people are back? Like, what, what are we going to do and how do we position ourselves to be successful for when that happens? Yeah. So from it's actually really, really good, good points that you've just made. When you think about who you're communicating with in organizations, like, are you working with other departments other than corporate real estate? Absolutely. Those conversations. We look, if I could get rid of the word workplace strategy, I would. I would replace it with enterprise alignment because a lot of people say there's three things that are important. We're going to say there's four. So a lot of people say it's people, place, and technology, technology. tools. I'm going to add process. Having a better understanding of what the business actually is doing. If you're a sales organization, your solution should be uniquely different than an accounting firm or a law firm or, you know, a trading company. They're uniquely different, and we need to have a better understanding of what work styles are happening, what people are doing, what they're trying to achieve, what the culture is, where they want to go. And then we need to take all of those things and develop a strategy that really helps our clients envision what they could or should be and then chart a path to help them get there. Wow. That's, uh, yeah, that is a very, very, very true. Like I said, the whole sort of working with HR and IT and even other people in the organization, like you think about, you know, corporate branding and communications and kind of all of those things, because they're all sort of interconnected. And traditionally, it's always been pretty much led by facilities management, corporate real estate, with some input from some of the other teams. But I agree, alignment is 100% required, because ultimately, that's the outcome is, is that you have an objective as a company, and your behaviors or the desired behaviors of your workforce and kind of how you make decisions about your workspace needs to be aligned with the vision, the goals, the, you know, objectives of what you're trying to achieve as a company, which is very unique from company to company. They're not necessarily exactly the same. And also because the makeup, the workforce makeup is very unique. So even though maybe your vision and your mission might be the same, the actual makeup of your organization is unique to, in comparison to someone else. And therefore, that's what should dictate the alignment of how are you how are you provisioning space or kind of the, the practice of work for the people that work for yeah. your organization? And, and, and listen, I said before, I think that the workplace world is being set up. 
uh, because everybody is looking at us to solve this problem. I actually think it's a communications problem more than anything else. It, it, and, and again, workplace is a part of this. But but let me let's just run this scenario by you. Um, Sandra, what do you want? Well, I want to work from home forever. <laughs> Whatever, and I get paid a ton of money to do it. Okay, how do you now? Everybody is making up their own rules, and now it's a change management nightmare because you're not trying to change one behavior; you're trying to change it what every single person has adopted as their own behavior in the void of telling people or, or setting an expectation. Okay, let's take scenario number two. You need to be back in the office. We're going to mandate that you're there five days a week. Feels like a punishment. Yeah. Okay. Versus there are a lot of great reasons why we want to be able to promote you working from home and to be in the office, whether it's that mentoring and, you know, you being there to really mentor our younger staff, to really help them get their footing and to really kind of build that next legacy. And we value you being able to do that, to get you the teammates that you need to have those strong connections and bonds to really support you so you can go out and do what you do best. And we want you to have that great work-life balance. So we want to kind of have a blend of the two, but we also want to give you moments that, you know, you can thrive whether that's taking a break from being at home all the time or taking a break from being in the office. It's kind of that balance. And we need your help in really helping ensuring that the company is successful, that we're, that we're ensuring the success going forward of that next generation of leaders, and that we're helping you with your work-life balance and your long-term ability to thrive. Right? And if we talk to people and lay all that out, because in a sense, I think, that's what most people really do care about. They care about their workforce, but they also got to get stuff done because if the company isn't successful, we don't have jobs, right? And I want to retire. And if we don't have the next generation of leaders that are there ready to step in and step up, that's not going to happen. So I think we're not telling a compelling enough story about why we are making the decisions that we're making. And I don't think, quite frankly, a lot of companies, I think a lot of CEOs are terrified that they don't want to be the next Jamie Dimon or Elon Musk yeah. that puts out a mandate and then they get skewered for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Kate, this has been, I wish there was like, we could go on for another hour because this conversation has been so good. Thank you again for your time today. Really, yeah. really appreciate it. Always happy to. We'll get together in a few more months and we'll, we'll reflect again and maybe project about what we think is coming. But, yeah, I think we're in a really exciting time right now. And I'm going to encourage everybody to embrace this moment, to go big, to go bold. You're not going to get it 100 percent right, but I think the world is going to be forgive, more forgiving now than they ever will or have been. And we need to chart a path forward to really help people thrive. 